It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Coming up later on today's episode, I'll be joined by Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Elizabeth Strout, who has just released her latest book, Olive Again. It's the long anticipated sequel to the best selling book, Olive Kitteridge, which was released way back in 2008. But first, we wanted you to hear something very powerful. So what you just heard there was an incredible feminist flash mob which took place this week in a few different places, including Santiago in Chile, which is the women you've heard there. And just to translate some of the words they were saying as they stood with their cloth covering their eyes, holding a piece of paper, they were saying the patriarchy is a judge who tries us for being born and our punishment is the violence you see now. It's femicide, impunity for my murderer, it's disappearance, it's rape and it wasn't my fault, not where I was, nor how I was dressed. You are the rapist, you are the rapist. It's the police, the judges, the state, the president. The oppressive state is a macho rapist. Jennifer, um, pretty powerful stuff from a flash mob. Yeah, and actually I hadn't heard any of the lyrics. I think the clue is kind of in the lyrics there. But before you sent me the link, I had a look at it and I thought, oh, you know, feminist flash mob. I was kind of expecting glee. Uh, and you don't get that at all. It's incredibly, it's angry and it's really powerful. It's not kind of an uplifting, fun thing. It's a really powerful statement. And just the sheer number of women, the video is actually worth having a look at. Um, and the words, they've subverted um, a, a stanza from a Chilean police anthem um, and use that. In, in their in the lyrics so I think you know that that even adds to the power of it it's a sleep calmly innocent girl without worrying about the bandit for over your smiling sweet dreams watches your loving cop um, yeah. so they've taken that and kind of turned it on its head but I think you know and in Chile they have good reason to be really angry about uh, it's a global phenomenon we know that everywhere in the world um, conviction rates for, for rape are much lower than they should be it's um, 8% of all rapes in Chile end up with a conviction so justifiably really really angry um, and I think it's great to see kind of women allowing themselves to be angry because for so long we're, we're sort of we've been taught and we've been brought up to believe that we need to be the nice ones in the room and the compromising the ones policing is fierce isn't it? it, it and it's, it still goes on. And, you know, like even as, as a parent myself, I sometimes find myself with my girls telling them to sort of tone it down and not be so loud and everything. And I, I actively have to stop myself because it's quite deep in us. I know. It's funny. I thought um, when I had two girls, like, this is terrible. I was like, oh, well, that'll be kind of quite a quiet house then. I, my house is so bloody loud. There's so much physical stuff going on, hitting and punching and loudness and shouting and all that kind of stuff, which I kind of do like now. But it's it's funny. People think with girls and there's always that, uh, oh, boys, they do all that stuff. It's not true. It's not. It's true. only if you socialise them that way and tell them they're not allowed. Like I don't tell them. I do tell them to shut up. But only when it gets really bad. Yeah. No. I, I think. I think you're absolutely right because I have two girls and a boy in the middle, and um, there's days when he's louder, but there's a lot of days when he's quieter than than the girls. The one thing I have noticed that I think is true. Um, my daughter is 13 now and I've had to sort of, I've noticed kind of her, her self-confidence has gone down a little bit since she hit her teens and that is a kind of a global phenomenon. So, her, you know, herself and her friends will come into the house and they'll preface everything with, oh, I'm not very good at, oh, I'm, I'm rubbish at, I'm crap at. So I actually threatened to start a swear jar there recently and I was like, I'm going to make you put a euro into a jar every time you start a sentence with, I'm not good at. So it actually really worked. Have you, you know, got the swear jar going on? Yeah, I, well, I threatened it. I didn't actually so take a euro off So what do you call them. it? A self-criticism jar? Yeah, well, I just call it the swear jar, but uh, yeah, probably should call it the self-esteem. 
self-esteem jar or self-criticism jar. Yeah. But it's it's literally, you know, and I, I don't know if your daughters have started it yet, but it was like overnight when they th- turned 13, herself and her friends, who were full of confidence uh, and amazing young women. But they would start everything with, well, I, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm really bad at maths and I'm not that good and I'm, I'm not great at history. And you're you're quite good at art. I'm really bad at art. And I just had to say, girls, stop. Enough yeah, for it. it's funny, no, because mine are like that and have been for ages. So I don't know what's going on and I need to get them to stop doing it. I've, so I'm going to introduce the swear jar. So thank you very much. But we've gone a bit off topic we there. Have. And you you mentioned that obviously this is a, a worldwide problem and even just a story that I just saw today that's on irishtimes.com. A 23-year-old rape survivor was set on fire by a gang of men, including the alleged rapist, as she made her way to court in northern India. And that just happened um, today. And it's public. Uh, thank goodness there is a huge public outrage in India about this, where I think women are, there's so many tens and dozens of rapes happen there every day. Well, it's such a huge country, but the lot of women in that country is, is particularly bad. Um, so thousands of Indias, Indians have protested in several cities following uh, the alleged rape and the murder. Um, but it's just, it's just a, another sort of another story. We're yeah. so almost immune to it now. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the whole conversation around sexual violence and everything, we're, we're coming to it really late, I think. And there's it's almost like there's a societal expectation that there's a certain acceptable minimum level of sexual violence against women. Um, and, you know, that's just something we'll have to put up with. Um, but I do think social media has had a role in kind of bringing some of those stories to our attention. Um, and that, that's kind of related to another story that we were going to talk about, um, which is whose job is it to, to clean up social media? And you, you and Simon Carswell reported on that this week. And this is the Facebook sort of modern moderators, I suppose, who whose job it is to look at all this stuff. Yeah, they're, they're sort of, in a sense, they're kind of like Facebook's factory floor. They're the ones that, ha- that are making the internet safe for, for all of us. So this is a story I've been following for a while. Um, a couple of content moderators came to me much earlier in the year around March and, and wanted to speak initially off the record. And then one of them decided at the last minute that, that he would be prepared to speak on the record. So that's Chris Gray, who has now just, just as of Wednesday this week, launched uh, legal proceedings in the Irish High Court against Facebook over psychological trauma that he claims that he suffered as a content moderator. Um, and, and, you know, I've seen the legal papers that have been lodged in court and they describe in, in, in kind of really graphic and disturbing detail. And even having interviewed him, I'd, you know, I'd heard a lot of this, but still to see it written out in black and white, um, some of the stuff that he was expected to look at and to make decisions on whether it was allowed to stay on the platform, whether it should be removed, and if, it, if he was going to remove it, why he was going to remove it. And, you know, not only are they sort of trawling through a, a lot of really violent and graphic content, they're under pressure as well, they claim now Facebook will deny this to a certain extent but they're under pressure to maintain like a really high quality rating they call it so they have to make um, really good decisions all the time about what to do with this material and it's not as simple as just take it down or leave it up but some of the stuff that you know that he had to look at that he says a year on um, he's, he's gone out of Facebook a year now uh, it still comes back to him and particularly at night is you know he saw a woman being stoned to death um, executions of people shot at point blank range he saw the abuse and murder of the Rohingya people um, and videos of, of what appeared to be migrants in, in Libya being tortured with molten metal. He's sat through whippings and beatings and animal torture and, and child exploitation. Um, and I think, you know, we really need to listen to what content moderators are, are telling us because what they're telling us isn't just about Facebook and, and you know, its responsibility to its staff or the responsibility of, of CPL, which would have been the company that hired him. They're telling us about the dark underbelly of humanity that we prefer not to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all there on our, you know, on our phones that are never more than an arm's length away. And a lot a lot of that stuff is misogynistic and is violence against women that he would have had to sit through. Yeah, a huge amount of, of what he described to me at the time was, you know, it, it was violence against women. It was it was beatings. It was rapes. It was also exploitation of children was a massive issue. Um, and, and, you know, sexual exploitation of children, but also violence against against children. Um, so I think, you know, those, those content moderators have a really valuable insight to offer not only is the work that they're doing really important in cleaning up the internet because unfortunately somebody has to do it um, but they've got a really valuable insight in, into into what humanity is capable of when there's a screen between us and, and the rest of the world um, you know and there, there's just some of it is just so incredibly dark so there are 15,000 other people like Chris doing that job around the world in 20 different locations and quite a lot of them are in Ireland um, and I do think it's worth thinking about when we hear about all the great tech jobs that are coming to Ireland and what great employers the likes of, of Facebook and, and Google and other companies are. And, and no doubt they are great employers if, if you're one of the people who, who um, works there and, and is employed by the company directly. But, um, you know, some of the content moderators like Chris would, would take issue with their treatment of the people who they outsource mm. to do this particular work. Well, another tech story you sort of alluded to in your column on Saturday was about this 
new thing, which apparently has been everywhere, but I hadn't heard it. Dopamine fasting. Yeah. Tell us about that. I, I'm always Another great fascinated. idea from Silicon Valley. I know. And <laughs> you know, I lived in, in Silicon Valley for a couple of years, so I do like to keep an eye out for the latest mad fad to come out of it. And I am always fascinated by the intersection between our lives and, and technology and how technology is shaping our lives. So it's 13 years since the smartphone was invented and arrived on the scene. And if you look at uh, global happiness levels in that time, they've plummeted everywhere in the world. Now, whether or not that's directly related, because as somebody pointed out to me recently, um, shark attacks always go up at the same time as ice cream sales. So (laughs) uh, there's correlation, but no causation. So whether or not um, our our happiness levels are directly linked to the prevalence of smartphones, um, I suppose we can't really say. It's a bit early. 13 years is a bit early to say. But there are people in Silicon Valley who believe they are. Uh, And they believe that the problem is, so you know the theory about dopamine and smartphones, right, and social media, which is that every time we get a like on something like Instagram or we get a retweet on Twitter or we get somebody commenting nicely on our Facebook photo that we put up, we get a little hit of dopamine, uh, which is wrongly known as the happiness hormone. That's a little bit of an oversimplification of, of what it actually does, but it is the hormone in our brains that makes us want more of something. So we're we're becoming basically dopamine junkies um, when we're, we're linked up to our phone getting a microdose of dopamine at regular intervals. So there's a whole cohort of young men, tech bros, um, in Silicon Valley that now believe that this microdosing on dopamine that they've been doing has long-term repercussions for them and it's really unhealthy. So they've come up with a solution, which is they go on a dopamine fast. Okay. It can last 24 hours. It could last up to three days. Um, and it basically seems to mean avoiding anything with a screen. Though the ones who are really pursuing it um, will also avoid other people, food, exercise, eye contact, sex, (laughs) anything that will get the heart rate going and basically give them a good time. So they have a terribly boring, quiet uh, 24 hours. They They can go for a walk as long as it's somewhere really boring. Um, and they can do sun salutations and, and a bit of mindfulness meditation. Uh, and then 24 hours later, they return to work ready and, okay. and rejuvenated. And how often do they do this? Oh, I think just every few months, not right. that often. But I mean, I was my friend was visiting from Silicon Valley and he told me about it because he knows that I have this kind of ongoing interest in, in whatever's happening over there. Um, and I immediately took out my phone and he was like, now, come on, Jen. I was like, I'm just emailing myself a note about this. So I remember to write a column on it. <laughs> but uh, of course, I Googled it the next day and it was all over the place. Everybody's already written about and in it. in fact, on Irish Times, com today we have two articles if anyone wants to read <laughs> so more, me which is probably a sign that it's on the way out now it won't be a thing anymore um, but I do think there's something in it you know it, 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 it's probably really good advice to take a bit of time away from your phone and, and take it easy and, and tune out but what worried me about and what I found really troubling was the central premise or the essential premise at the heart of it which is that you know our phones are now inextricably linked to, to happiness to our happiness yeah and that we're so happy because we're so connected <laughs> that it's making us miserable and that the way to solve this is to just take 24 hours away from your phone and then you can go back to doing exactly what you were doing before. I think we've yeah. got much bigger problems than that. I think you're right. Um, and listen, we just thought before you go to talk about one woman who's been in the news this week, uh, Lisa Smith. So you were interested particularly in the media coverage of Lisa Smith coming back to Ireland. Um, tell us a bit about it. Yeah, like everybody else, I suppose, in the country, I've been really interested in in the story of Lisa Smith. And I, I you know, I, I'm really proud, I think, as a country of how we've handled it, um, because there was a story of Shamima Begum in, in, in the United Kingdom. Um, and there was all kinds of talk about taking away her citizenship. And that was never even suggested here. So um, but she has come back. And I suppose we have to be mindful that she has been charged with membership of, of the Islamic State and, and, of course, is entitled to a fair trial, um, as anybody else is. But what I thought was interesting about it um, wasn't really so much the nature of the charge or what she might have said in her, her previous media interviews but it was more just to do with some of the media attention that surrounded there was this frenzy about what flight was she going to be on and who was going to get on the flight with her um, and you know I thought that it probably wasn't unconnected from her gender you know I think we have this ongoing fascination with women who are associated with kind of quote unquote bad stuff um, and she was seen as, as, as a, a woman who was you know rightly or wrongly was associated um, with a membership of the Islamic State so you know there were an awful lot of reporters went on the flight with her and we heard in, in graphic and, and quite long detail about this pink blanket that she put up over herself and her child. I almost felt as though I was being expected to infer something about that. You know, that the, the fact that she was covering herself with a, with a pink blanket said something about uh, her, her guilt or her innocence. When in reality, like she's the mother of a probably very traumatised, frightened a two-year-old child. And I mean, I've flown with a two-year-old child. It's not fun under the best of circumstances. Um, so I think, you know, I think the way that she behaved on, on the flight was exactly as I would have behaved or, or anybody would have behaved. But some of the media coverage in, in particular sort of wanted to infer things about her. And there was a piece that struck me in the mirror 
um, where a man was quoted, a Dublin man, who, uh, who who told how he got a fright, quote unquote, as Smith looked at him with her piercing blue eyes. Um, and he said he wasn't comfortable on the flight. He got very annoyed and pretty agitated knowing that he was travelling with her as though there was some immediate kind of threat to his safety. Um, and we weren't told that she was on board, he said, you know, kind of indignantly. Um, and I just thought, you know, there are elements of what we've seen before, going back to even Catherine Nevin. I, I'm sure you remember all the reporting. Do, yes. Some of our listeners are probably too young to remember that. But that was kind of in the earlier days of our journalism careers. Um, and it was a real low point, I think, um, the, the kind of the reporting on how she looked and her appearance. And I just think we need to be really careful that we don't go back there. We know an awful lot more now than we did then um, about the damage that that kind of reporting can do. So, um, yeah, so I just hope that as... As, you know, as a, as a case eventually comes to court and, and rolls on, that there will be a more, I suppose, respectful and balanced approach to, mm. to reporting. And on she it. was remanded in custody, I think, to um, Docus to Mountjoy, and she's segregated, I think, there. So that's obviously. right for her own safety. Yeah. Uh, I understand, and you, you know, that's another reason. Like she's a, a citizen of the state and is entitled to the same fair trial that that anybody would be, whatever. Um, I suppose views people might have formed about her through her, her media interviews that, that she's given but I think we need to wait and hear um, what comes out of it and and I just I, I would be really upset to see that kind of media coverage being encouraged here because one of the things we do well as a country is humanity and compassion. So I'm always interested Jennifer in what you're binging on uh, on Netflix or elsewhere so what is it at the moment? Yeah well I've been I've been kind of travelling um, for the UK election so I haven't had a huge amount of time to, to binge on, on Netflix like I normally would but I have been catching up on the latest series of The Crown and I think do you have a confession for us to make about The Crown Roisin anything you want to share with the listeners of the Women's Podcast about a certain crush you have Oh, oh, oh Prince Philip <laughs> Prince Philip that's how did you that was just a little comment I made on Twitter I know I spotted it like, anyway, yeah, I, see, I see where she's coming from with that <laughs> well, I can't say it's I... just in this series he is definitely I mean if you can even if you can vaguely call him fanciable he is a tiny bit more fanciable he was he was horrible in the other ones there's a more I preferred him in the other series did I you? find him okay. really really unlikable in the... oh, and normally I am quite susceptible to a grumpy man I kind of like a grumpy man but yeah. no he's, 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 too, he's too grumpy for me but it is pretty good I it, it flagged in I'm the middle Oh, there. It there. I can't believe you snared me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't fancy Prince Philip. Bloody hell. <laughs> Go on. There's no accounting for taste, Roisin. Uh-huh. Um, but Helena Bonham Carter is amazing. She, she is amazing. I mean, she's amazing at playing Helena Bonham yeah. Carter, I think, more than anything else. I just love else. watching but her she's just anything. fabulous. Yeah, I've become obsessed. My granny, my late granny, who I absolutely adored, used to be obsessed with the royals and in particular Princess Margaret. Oh. And I so wish she was still alive because I would love to have a conversation with her about Princess Margaret. Now, I used to think it was really boring that my granny liked the royals. Now I'm equally obsessed and I'll probably go through her back catalogue of books that I inherited up in the attic somewhere <laughs> and read up on them all. They're fascinating. It did kind of flag around the middle. I felt like they were trying to attach it to issues. But towards the end of the series, if you're still watching it, stick with it because it gets really, really Yeah, and we should give a little shout out to Princess Anne, who's very much still with us. Who she was caught in the video this week, sort of shrugging to her mom, the I Queen, saying excellent. she wasn't going to go and shake hands with Trump. Uh, it was just fantastic. She was also, which isn't hasn't been mentioned in all the reports, she was also part of that little circle of world leaders who were bitching about Trump. Um, with Johnson was there, uh, Macron, there was um, Trudeau, and you just see the top of Princess Anne's head as well. She I should get more credit, shouldn't she? She Definitely. she's been the real surprise for me actually out of watching the Crown. I'm just like she's so much more interesting than I ever would to give her credit for. The men in the royal family don't interest me at all, I have to say. With all due respect to William and Harry, it is the women. They are the unsung heroines and they're just amazing. I never realised the Queen Mother was so mean either. Oh yeah, apparently. Yeah, she's quite a nasty matriarch, really. Yeah. She is. And I never would have thought that. I always thought she was this kind of sweet old lady, but there's a there's a definite, she was the original nasty woman, I think. For that, she should be celebrated. And she liked her gin, which I like. Don't we all? <laughs> Thank you very much, Jennifer O'Connell. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Now, it's been more than a decade since we were first introduced to the blunt, outspoken, but ultimately lovable Olive Kitteridge. And now she's back in the brand new book, Olive Again. The book navigates the second half of Olive's life as she comes to terms with the changes in her own existence and in those around her. It's told in a series of connected short stories. It's an exploration into ageing, dating and the small extraordinary moments in everyday life. And as many of you will know, the woman behind Olive is Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Elizabeth Strout, who joins me on today's episode to talk about bringing her most famous character back to life. 
Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming in to see us. It's um, really my pleasure. Great. Um, it's great to have a discussion on the podcast, the women's podcast, about an amazing woman that you created called Olive Kitteridge. Now, for anyone who doesn't know or hasn't read your books, tell us about Olive. And then we'll talk about why she's back and it's brilliant. Well, Olive is a retired <laughs> school teacher who lives in a small town in Maine. And she um, is a very bold presence, let's say. She... Mm has no filter, I think is one way she's been described as she will say anything and she will um, almost do anything. And yet she has um, great pockets of compassion within her, underneath her crusty exterior. And she's just a very, very complicated person with many different aspects to her. And I think most of us have many of those aspects, but we try to keep them damped down. And Olive being Olive just doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's one point where she's in a relationship with this man, Jack, and he says something like, can you stop being so much Olive? Right. I just thought that was pretty Right, exactly. <laughs> she's and too she, much at times. Yes, exactly. But the, you wrote about her first in Olive Kittredge, in your, right. your third novel, I think. Right, it? that's right. Um, so kind of that was such a success people really she took her to their hearts and, and you know yes. she, she was very successful and that was sort of it really but why did you, you your new book is called Olive Again so why did she come back into your life I, did you think she would I no I never thought that I would see Olive again on the page you know I mean she's always been in my head she stays around all my characters do but I really, truly never thought that I would write about Olive again. <laughs> and um, she just showed up. That's it. She just showed up. Now, when, when people say this, yeah. uh, it's a very writerly thing to say. Yeah. You know, she showed up. In the, right. That's okay. what happened to you. That's actually literally what happened. The first time she showed up for Olive Kittredge, she showed up with a bang. I was unloading the dishwasher, and I could just feel this presence almost behind me. I, I could just feel her and then see her, and I could hear the inside of her head you know, saying it's high time everyone left. And I knew at that point she was at her son's wedding, and that was the first time I met Olive. And then the second time, um, a, a few years ago, I was sitting in a cafe in Norway, and I think I was just checking my emails or something, and she just appeared, absolutely appeared, you know, nosing her car into that marina and getting out, and I saw she had a cane, so I realized, oh, she's older. But she just, she's so vivid that I knew I had to get it down. It's, it's interesting hearing you talk about that because I'm thinking of Elizabeth Gilbert. I don't know if you've read her book, Big Magic, but it's all about inspiration and stuff. And it's very much like that, these ideas almost floating around and then they land exactly. in your psyche. And sometimes we just bat them away and ignore them. But you, clearly... Well, are. Olive cannot be ignored. <laughs> She's one character that attention must be paid. Yes. Now, there's loads of things to talk about in Olive again, but one of them is that she's, um, we find Olive in a kind of a relationship after her husband Henry yeah. has died right. with a man called Jack who right. opens the book and he's um, uh, he's this very interesting man, very self-aware. I liked how self-aware yes, he was. I thought so too. And also the fact that he kept referring to this um, incontinence pad that he was wearing. That's which, right. He's had prostate surgery. Exactly, and he's wearing a pad. Not and it's that kind of um, detail and, and right. honesty and reality. Right. But it, So these two people, these older people, are mm -hmm. having this relationship. Two yeah. quite different people, I suppose, Very as well. different. And what, and what was it about older relationships that you wanted to talk about? Because there is this thing that once people get past a certain age, you know, you're kind of dead from the waist down and desire right. isn't something. That's right. And I just don't <laughs> think that's true. Um, I, I've watched a lot of people in Maine where I still live part-time, there's an awful lot of older people. Um, I think it has the highest percentage of old people in the country, elderly people, whatever. But I, I have watched them, and they will reconnect again and again if they can. If there's anybody available, they will simply do that. And it's been very, very interesting, and I realize that, you know, there's a myth that people stop growing, I think, at a certain point. They, they become invisible, and they therefore we assume that they've stopped growing and they haven't they're they're continuing they have their they have their feelings they have their desires they have their needs and they want to live with dignity just like everybody else and it was very interesting for me to find jack and uncover jack and realize that as different as they are they actually make a good pair because they're both very honest with themselves and with each other yeah, I loved how Jack sort of was reflecting on his first, his marriage yeah. and, you know, what a 
Hames he'd kind of made of it and his own failings. That's right. And again, that's something that's interesting, especially on a man. We're we're used to seeing women with these interior lives. Mm -hmm. But of course men have them too. And of of course course men have regrets and reflections. But his seemed very tangible. And, 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 you know, he had just reached a point um, where he really kind of felt like he had not lived right. Yeah. Um, The other thing about her is she's kind of, uh, she's a lonely woman, I, I think to some degree, but also very self-contained. Well, yes, time. I mean, she's lonely, but not with Jack. When she's, no. you know, the years that she's married to so Jack. So she has him for eight years. She has him, she, right. She has and this then, other period. There's one right. chapter in the book that I just found very difficult to read. It's called Poet. Right, and that was the first one I wrote. That's interesting because she's she's driving into the marina yeah, and that's right. that image of her. Yes, that's right. And that was the cane. first story that I wrote because I don't write from beginning to end. Okay, so that but, you wrote that as a, as a sort of short story to yeah, see what else would right. happen. And that's when I realized that she'd been married. Okay. And so I thought, okay, let's go back and marry her up. And, Excellent. But, um, she meets this old student of hers. Right, exactly. In uh, in this booth yes. having breakfast. Andrea LaRue. And she's attracted to Andrea because Andrea uh, was the uh, poet laureate. And of so, the United States? Yeah, famous, right. big deal. Right. and really and big deal. She, Olive hadn't kind of thought anything of Nobody her. Nobody had ever thought that Andrea LaRue would be Poet, a poet laureate of the United States. And I don't know how much of a spoiler we, alert we have to do here, but maybe a little bit. But I just think it's really well, fascinating. She, yeah. she meets her and talks to her at length. And I suppose it's what I found really engaging about this is the idea of what impression you make on somebody versus the reality. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's always interested me because we all walk around with our interior lives and then we bang up against the real world. And that interfacing between the real world and who we think we are inside ourselves is so interesting to me. Yeah. And there's a sting in the tail of that particular story, yeah, yeah. Um, which probably won't reveal because it will well. kind of ruin it. <laughs> but um, she ends up, Olive ends up finding out exactly what Andrea thought of her right. at this meeting. Right. And it's not right. pleasant. Right. Exactly. <clears throat> right. But Olive absorbs it, which was interesting as well, you know, so by the last line, yeah, you realize she's she's going to be okay with it, even though it was very upsetting. These are, um, I suppose they're not really, they are kind of like short stories. How do you sort of describe it? Because what you do very cleverly is they're kind of self-contained pieces, but the characters in them right. mix up with other ones. Right. Like, I, I loved the, you know, the eighth grader Kaylee yes, you know, coming Kaylee into contact Kelly with Olive. Right, exactly. And having a sort of a, a kind of benign, yeah, in a way, exactly. interpretation of exactly. her. Exactly. Olive is actually quite nice to her in a way. Um, in the coffee shop and, and helps her out with understanding, you know, Kaylee's helps Kaylee understand some of her situation. But, um, yeah, so, you know, they are stories, I guess, because they are that you could read any of them on their own, but they're connected. And um, but I really it doesn't bother me if anybody thinks of it as a novel or short stories or whatever. I don't care. Whatever you want to call it. <laughs> it's fine with me. You don't have an ego around those things. No, I don't care at all. We have to, should, I should say you have won the Pulitzer Prize. I'm sitting with the Pulitzer Prize winning here. What does something like that um, do and mean for you as a writer? Right. The Pulitzer, um, and that was a that was a really lovely thing to have won that prize because it brought Olive to so many more readers. And they really liked her. It was um, quite a, a book after it won the Pulitzer Prize. And it had been very well received, but it had not sold. So I had many more okay. readers as a result of the Pulitzer Prize. So it gave you a much wider audience. Yes. And is that what you'd say the, the main benefit is? Of yes. Does it get you taken any more seriously or is that a, a strange question? I don't know. I suppose it does. But <laughs> you were taking yourself very seriously. I was, anyway. Yes, exactly. That's uh, right. I've always taken myself seriously. And, and when I realized that I had more readers, um, you know, there, I had a little bit of a gulp. But then I thought, no, I've, I've always felt very responsible to my readers. And it doesn't matter if it's one reader or, you know, a million readers. I still have that sense of responsibility and I still hold myself to a very high standard. So I realized, okay, that's fine. I can deal with that. Now, Olive's world is Maine, as you mentioned yeah. earlier, and that's where you grew up. That's right. And it sort of reminds me and uh, uh, of the Ann Tyler Baltimore kind of thing yeah. as well. Like she right. wrote so well. I mean, are you a yeah. fan? Were you a I, fan? Of, I, I love Yeah, Ann she's Tyler's another, yeah. I mean, I love your work. I love her yeah. work. And to me, they're just... Uh, both of you get under the skin of human nature and yeah. really get behind what's, what what yeah. makes people tick. Uh-huh. 
but foibles, the warts and all stuff. Right. But also the stuff that even the bad people are somehow likable as well. Yeah. I think you kind of find right. something to like. I'm just going off on a thing. But Maine yeah. is important to you as a, right. as a character too. It is. And I had to live in New York for many years before I realized <laughs> that I should be and could be writing about Maine. It was interesting because when I first moved to New York and I was always writing, I was writing about New York and it, and I hadn't lived there long enough to be able to really absorb it. I mean, now I can write about New York because I've lived there long enough, but mm. um, but I had to turn around and look back to Maine and realize, oh, that's, that is my DNA. That's what I really need to be expressing. Some people deride that thing, write what you know. Some people think that's, well, why would you write what you know? I mean, it's not well, just what you know, but you're writing about an environment yeah, that you're very familiar with. Right. But obviously that works for you. It works for me. So that's all I can say about that. <laughs> so take me back to very small Elizabeth Stroud when you were tiny, because yeah. you, you've been writing, you had been I writing. I have been writing since I was three or four years, ever since I could first write a sentence. Do you remember that? Like those? Yes. Tell me about it then as I a child. remember my mother giving me notebooks and they were those notebooks with the big, you know, fat lines in them. And um, I remember her saying to me, write down what you did today. And if we went to buy a pair of sneakers, I can rem- I remember she said, write down what the man was like who sold you the sneakers. So I did. Now, and was I she would write a writer? These she wasn't, but I think she always wanted to be. Oh. Yeah. She taught English and she taught expository writing in the English class. So she was like, what was the sneaker man like? Yes. And I would say, okay. So I would just write. So from a very young age, I was writing sentences and thinking in terms of sentences and thinking in terms of observing people when I could see them because there weren't, you know, we lived on the coast and it was very isolated. But um, was it a poor upbringing or? um, It was not a wealthy upbringing by any means. But happy? It was isolated. It was um, very puritanical. And um, I think at one point I've described my parents as having a skeptical view of pleasure. Oh, dear. Which is probably accurate. Right. I actually saw something recently that said, be deserving first and then you can desire. That you had to kind of um, become a certain type of person before you can even think of wanting something. Right. Well, you know... Part of the Puritan thing was was a very hard work ethic, so I did inherit that. Well, that's good. Yes, that's yes, useful. it was good. Right. And what um, did you then? How did it manifest though in your childhood? In terms of that, was it a very strict disciplinarian upbringing? Yes, it was very strict. And um, but I spent a great deal of time outdoors alone, and um, was perfectly happy. I think my first friend was the physical world. You know, I would collect the periwinkles on the shore or I would go into the woods and collect tree toads. And, you know, so I was not unhappy outside by myself for long, long stretches of time. Did you bear any resentment to your parents for the upbringing at any point? You know, when you get to be a teenager or slightly older and you kind of look at your situation and maybe compare yourself to other people. Um, It took me a very, very long time to realize that my childhood was different. I mean, I think on some level I intuited it the way children do, but there were no words for me to put around that for really quite a, quite a while. I think until I went to college and then I realized that, you know, other people had, you know, um, different kinds of backgrounds. And did you mind when you realized that? Did it kind of give you any... Well, um, you know, you have what you have and you... Deal with what you deal with. That's true. Did you have any siblings? I have an older brother, but he never wanted to play with me or anything. So So you might as well have been an only child. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing that will give people hope, I think, any budding writers listening, that it took you a very long time to get published. Tell us about that time, but you you never stopped writing. I never, ever stopped writing. So you were a writer, essentially, from those three-year-old notebook days. I understood myself to be a writer from a very, very young age. And what surprised me as I got older was how nobody wanted my work. (laughs) I love that. I was actually really kind of surprised because I thought, you know, I'm a writer. Why aren't you interested? So that went on for a very long time. And And what did you do to make money and to earn a living? Right, exactly. I did, oh, I did so many things, which I look back now and they weren't bad because they helped me understand so much about different parts of the culture. But, 
you know, I worked in a shoe mill. I worked, um, waitressing was a big deal because I could work at night. I worked as a cocktail piano player at night. Anything that I could do at night so I could have my days free okay. to write. Um, but it just, I just didn't get anywhere. I came to Oxford, England. I lived there for a year because I was really trying to sort of run away from home and I couldn't speak any other languages. And I worked in a pub there. Um, writing all the time, but nobody was interested. And so finally I decided to go to law school because I had a social conscience and I thought, well, I'll be a lawyer during the day and write at night. And that was very misinformed thinking. (laughs) So I dropped out of law school, then I went back to law school. And when I went back, I got a degree in gerontology, which is interesting. Um, And I thought I will do elderly law and I'll have, I could picture a little um, storefront that I would have for elderly people to come and just sit if they needed to. Why did you have this interest in older people? Because exactly. they're very strong in your books as well. Exactly. And um, and I, you know, I, I think it's because in the isolation of that youth that I was talking about, we lived on a dirt road and there were a number of my great aunts that lived in small houses along that dirt road. So these were the only people that I knew, these elderly people. And they were very main. They were very droll. They were very depressed. One of them um, was called Olive, which is interesting because on no level do I connect her with Olive Kittredge because she was actually the sweetest. She was the nicest of them all. Um, But I think, and I would listen to them, and I would go in and out of their house you know, like a squirrel and nobody paid any attention to me. But I can remember listening to them talk um, about they were so interested in their husband's last meals. And and I can remember so well my Aunt Olive, she was smoking and she'd say, oh, I'm just so glad that Frank had that mackerel the way he liked it. I always remember that. You know, and so this was like sort of the music of my youth. And I think because there were no children. I mean, if you grow up around children, you get interested in children. I don't know. But I think because these were the people that I first knew, these elderly people, on, on maybe on some level I felt almost responsible for them the way kids do, mm. that I've always been interested in, in elderly people. And, and that's when I got the gerontology certificate. And so tell us about the, the break or the, the actually somebody wanting to publish you because that must right. have been, I mean, the fact that you kept going for a start because a lot of yeah. people would just put away all their stuff right. and say, right, that's not but, work. You know, I, first of all, I, I just had to. I mean, I just had to. And people say, oh, you must have been so disciplined. But it, I don't, discipline for me is something like going to the gym. And I don't have discipline for that. You know, so I don't think I'm, I mean, I just had to do it because I knew that that's who I was. And so I just kept doing it. And I would get some encouragement. You know, the, uh, there was an, a fiction editor at The New Yorker who would write to me and his rejections got longer and longer. And he would eventually say, keep writing because, you know, your stuff is like 92% better than most of what comes across my desk. So that helped me. Wow. You know, yeah. and, and so I... I just, but I understood it wasn't good enough yet. I actually knew that right. about it. And I also knew if I could just find my voice, I could do it. So you were honing and honing your craft all I this was, time. I was totally teaching myself how to write that whole time. And do you feel, you remember when that voice did emerge that you felt? Yes, it was with Amy and Isabel. Yeah. yeah. And, I be, and I remember thinking, Oh, now I'm doing it. And it's almost like, in my memory, almost like learning to ride a bicycle when you realize, oh, I can do this. I'm balancing. I'm doing it. God, that's lovely. Yeah. And it took you quite a while to write that novel. Is that right? Yeah, it took me about seven years to write that. And then took me a long time to, well, anyway, I was 43 when it came out. Okay. And did that just, did that feel like a relief or what did it feel like or just an excitement that now you're going to actually be able to well, do it Well, it felt living? very exciting. Um, it was very exciting, but the truth is that the publicity that it received and the, you know, and I was sent on quite a book tour in the United States with that and um, I had no idea what that, I didn't know anything about book tours or publicity or anything. And so I was... That was frightening, frankly. Okay. I mean, I was excited that the book was out, but but in truth, I was, it was frightening to have all these people suddenly 
paying attention to me. <laughs> because some people might sort of glow and bask in that kind of attention. No, I was I was scared, frankly. Okay. Yeah. And did it feel, though, that you'd arrived in another way, though? I mean, were you able to give up having those jobs? Um, yes, I was. I was. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you got, like, you, you know, in terms of an advance or in terms of yep. security. Yeah, I did. Just... I did. I got an agent and then I was able to actually write. Yeah. So it's amazing to think of you as a child and and having that ambition and yeah. having, wanting. I suppose at so the end long. of the day, writers want readers. Oh, I was always thinking about my readers, and I'm still always. I, I for me, it's interesting because I've talked to different writers, and they say some. I, I have some friends who are writers, and they'll say I never think about the reader, but I do. I'm always thinking about the reader, um, and it's almost like we're in a dance together, and and I feel. Like I said, I feel responsible for the reader when I was talking about getting more readers with the Pulitzer. And and I feel that it's my job to um, deliver to the reader something that will be meaningful and truthful and will, even if it's just for a few moments, make them feel larger and comforted and make them understand that whatever they may have thought and felt secretly has probably been thought and felt before. You know, that sort of I think that's fascinating, though, the difference between writers who don't, not saying they don't care, right, necessarily that yeah. might be a bit harsh, but who don't think about it. But the fact that you feel a responsibility, yeah. that sort of makes sense when I read your work yeah. because there is so much in it that we can take away, but not heavy-handedly, you right. know, done in a very right. light, right, with a light touch. Right, and I, I mean, I think touch. about them on every level. You know, I think about the, giving them something truthful and also, I think, Oh, there's been a lot of conversation and there's, there's loudness on the page. Let's go to a scene where they can rest, you know, that kind of thing. That's interesting because, um, you know, I think I heard you talking about Olive, the fact that it's not all about Olive. Like this chapters are focusing on different people. Yeah, and you, right. you said, yeah, because she'd be too much to have on it. She would be too much to have on a page. I, I do believe that. <laughs> and that's thinking of the reader then that in a way. That is thinking of the reader. You're exactly right. Yeah. That's right. So what are you working on at the moment? Oh, I, oh I'd oh, i love to tell you. I would just love to tell you. But I can't because it's not done yet. It's almost done, but it's not done yet. And so it's it's just not good for the work to talk about it. All right. Well, let's, but, talk, man, about your, um, <laughs> let's talk about your writing life then because mm. I think people are interested in that too. Okay. What, are you a disciplined person? Are you a get up at 7 o'clock in the morning and write for three hours? What, what's your... Um... I get up when I get up. <laughs> Okay. It's kind of writing so, life, I think. Yeah. I like that. So I get up when I get up, um, and that varies according to how well I slept, et cetera. But I get up when I get up, and then after breakfast is when I like to work the best because the day has not yet made its noise into my life. And I will work for three or four hours at that time, and that's the best time. I think it's the best time for me to write. Um, and then I put lunch off as long as I can because there's something about having lunch, and I don't understand it, but every time I have, even if it's just a little lunch, it breaks the energy. There's some sagging of the energy, and that's it in a way for the day, although I may very well go back and look in the afternoon to see what I did that morning, but that's always risky because if I think I had a really good morning and then I look and it <laughs> yeah. I didn't, then that makes me sad, you know. <laughs> it makes me irritated for the rest of the day. But it's every, but, like, do you take breaks at the weekend or could you find yourself working I, at the weekend? You know, I I um, I um used to take breaks on the weekend, but now at times I, I will write on a weekend, especially if I've missed a day during the week for whatever reasons. Because, okay. you know, I like to write at least five days a week. And yeah. uh, do you have family? Do you have anybody to interrupt you in this? Uh, I have a husband who does... <laughs> <laughs> does interrupt me. Um, do you not have a do yeah. not disturb? I'm no, writing I the know, next work. Exactly. Genius. I know. It's, it's funny because um, in New York, I can, you know, I work in the apartment and he needs to leave that apartment so that I can work. <laughs> so that's um, in Maine. I have my own studio, um, which I only had for about five years. And it's fabulous. It's above the bookstore and it's just my room and it's wonderful and I can spend you know all sorts of time there mm. and I do so that's 
helpful. What does your husband go? Does he go off doing a job? Or does my he... husband. Well, my husband teaches at law school, but he teaches in Boston, so he's away a couple of days a week. Whether okay. we're in New York or Maine, he's away a couple of days a week. Yeah. But um, if he's in New York and he's not teaching on those days, then he needs to find. He has to get. That's that's what kind of an olive thing to do. I think sending people <laughs> off. <laughs> do you think he's, there's much of olive in you? Anything, or is she a completely other? You know, it's funny because I've never thought that I was olive at all. Um, but then I realized some people might think I am because people have said, "Oh, well, I thought I was going to meet olive." Or something, and I realize, oh right, okay. Well, maybe people think I'm olive, but I'm not. I mean, I don't. I don't think that I'm olive, hmm. but she doesn't think she's olive. Either. No, exactly. I mean, you know, know, so I don't think knows? I know. Who I mean, I you know. So, but but I do remember after the first Olive Kittredge book, I do remember walking across the street and having some sort of olive thought. I don't know what it was, but I remember thinking, oh my word, that's that's like an olive thought. I'm thinking about back to Maine again is, uh, you know, you write so much about so many yeah. different personalities and, and, and storylines and things that happen. Is that difficult in terms of the main folk that you meet and people coming up and saying, oh, I know what you were doing there? Or or is that? Is well, that first problem? of all, they're from Maine, so they wouldn't say it. <laughs> and that's helpful. It's great. Um, <laughs> and second of all, I don't think that. There, I don't think there's anybody particularly recognizable there because they're all pieces of different parts of my life experience or my imagination. You know, they're made up people. And if they do see themselves, I didn't mean to be writing about them, you know. So I think, um, I think they're okay problem, with it. Clearly. I don't think it's a problem. Um, <laughs> I, I know, know you can't tell us about the book you're writing about, but mm. what about um, what has been the most pleasurable aspect of your success? Because you are a really successful writer. Now, it's difficult because you think yeah. of all the people writing all over the world and to make it yeah. in the way you have, yeah. um, which is so well-deserved because you've been plugging away yeah. and plugging away. But what is it that uh, makes you happy about the sort of level of success you've attained? Or, or is there a moment that you kind of thought, you know, wow, this is great? It's Honestly, it's when I meet once in a while I meet a reader and I can just feel and understand that they have really received what I wanted to give them from a book. And that mm. that makes me happy. More than any monetary kind of gain. Oh, yeah. No, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the reader that you meet once in a while that you realize. And there's oh. been adaptations of various things like plays. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think there's been a, is there a film? There is a film of Olive Kittredge um, with Richard Jenkins and Frances McDormand. And then there was a play of My Name is Lucy Barton with Laura Linney, yeah. which is going to be out in New York. It's coming to New York in January. Wow. And it was in London twice. Is it, is it great to see something like that or is it a bit terrifying to see your work kind of put in a totally different context? Well, it's context? terrifying, but, it's, but both of them have been really well done. I mean, I think Laura Linney was fabulous as Lucy Barton and I think that Richard Jenkins and Frances McDormand did a wonderful job so that was lucky and well it wasn't just luck I mean you know I I gave it or allowed the right people to mm. to have permission for my work um but still there's luck <laughs> because yeah. but it's but it's also it's a weird thing to see it in a different form mm. it's very strange I can't quite explain it but no, I can imagine no. because I suppose it's because, your creation. Yeah, and, and it's sort of like, oh, look, yeah. you're you're up there. <laughs> what about the travel aspect of this? Because you're here in mm-hmm. Dublin, which is great for mm-hmm. a literary event. Mm-hmm. Um, you go all over the world for these book yeah. tours. Have the book tours become a, a more agreeable aspect? or You know, the book tours, that's where I meet my readers, and that's a good thing. Um, the only trouble with the book tours, I, I just get tired. Mm. I get tired. What about, um, just finally, because this is the women's podcast and we talk a lot about women writers and mm-hmm. how, uh, whether they are, again, taken as seriously sometimes as, right. as men. Have you found any issues like that? Um, have you found or do you see any discrimination in the industry that you're in or is is it overblown you know, in your opinion? Um, it's, that's a very good question. And I think that, you know, I just... It's something that um, I'm I'm sure that it's there. I just don't look at it. I'm a woman and I'm a writer and that's all I can do. Um, I can only write as well as I can and that's that's all I can do. What do you like to read? 
fiction. <laughs> and also, but I also have been on a real biography kick lately. And I Can just, you recommend some good books for? Well, I just read two different biographies of Tolstoy, which was that interesting. Is very highfalutin. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, it was interesting because I've always loved Tolstoy. I just, from a young age, I really liked his work. And so recently I read um, Henri Troyat's biography of him, which is a big, fat, wonderful book and reads almost like a novel. Okay. And then I thought, okay, well, let me see it through a different, because when you read a biography, you're aware that you are seeing the subject through the biographer's mm. eyes. So I wanted to see it through somebody else's eyes just for fun. So I read Ann Wilson's biography, and that was interesting. The two different ones were very, it, they were quite different. That was interesting. And, okay. um, and I have just finished Colin McCann's new book. Oh, well, did you have a proof of it? Is it out Yes, yet? I had a proof of it. It's not out yet. Okay, but is it absolutely amazing? absolutely wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And would he be a writer you admire as well? I do. I like him very much, yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, listen, Elizabeth, you have given so much joy through your writing to me. Thank and I'm, you. I, as I told you earlier, my, I rang my mum to say you were coming in and mm. she was just absolutely blown away because I think you're very, I think like Anne Tyler and, and people like that who... Uh, show us behind the kind of obvious mm-hmm. of people and into all right. the intricacies, into all the not just black and white because none of us right. are. exactly. But that's exactly right. We can be good, we can be bad, right. we can be annoying. All and, sorts of things. And that's everybody. I yeah, think. I think so too. But I think often in fiction and literary fiction and, and popular fiction, there's, there's a kind of stock characters. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, when you open an Elizabeth Strout book, you're just never going to find that. And that's really nice <laughs> Thank to know. You. Well, Thank you're very you so welcome. Much. And thanks for everything you do. I can't wait to read everything okay, else you great. do. Thank and you. Thanks for coming Appreciate in. it. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to our guests, Jennifer O'Connell and the brilliant Elizabeth Strout. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 